Heavenly Father, I pray that as we approach this text, we would um, come with the posture and the disposition, the awareness and the hunger of what we're about to hear, that we would not hear these words as any other words, no matter the greatest books that have ever been written are, are hollow compared to the substance that's in your word. And I pray that we would be able to, to hear that truth today from this life-giving, legacy-producing text. These are not merely ink on a page, but, but what, what you tell us, the, your living and active word, able to refine us and challenge us and grow us and strengthen us and reconcile us and restore relationships and rebuild ruined cities, God through the application of your word to give us life and freedom and joy and hope and peace and calm. Even things completely untethered to our circumstances, your word can do all of that because it points to you who can do all. So we gather, Father, what we need more than anything else. It's not ideas on how to live better, but, but a declaration of a display of our King and our hero, Jesus. So God, I pray that during our songs, our prayers, our conversations, this sermon, and all throughout this next week, that Jesus would be loud to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Recently read um, what, at least right now, I would say beyond the Bible, other than the Bible, has got to be my favorite book. And, and I... It's a, it feels like that's a big overstatement um, based on how many books there are and how much I get to read, but it really, I think, was one of the most beautiful, thoughtful, um, helpful books that I've read, and I don't know how long. It's by an incredible artist named Andrew Peterson, musician, uh, writes a number of children's books, writes other, just, just phenomenal storyteller, but the book was God of the Garden, and it just absolutely blew me away. And in one sense, if, if, and partly, like, I would strongly, I would encourage you to read this book, and in one sense, it's about trees. And it's kind of weird to talk about, like, the most stunning book I've ever read is about trees, but as he weaves this incredible narrative through, what you find is about life and memory and our stories and healing and redemption. And he tells these, these, these really interesting stories about trees. In chapter three, the southern ends, um, Peterson, he kind of meanders when he was living in Florida and, and down in the south. He just meanders through a number of stories about trees. And I'll give you a couple of them. One of them was called the senator. This tree called the senator. It was a bald cypress. It was the largest tree east of the Mississippi. It was the fifth oldest tree in the world. It's 3,500 years old. So when you think about it, 3,500 years old, when it was watching over the Florida swamps, Moses was leading God's people out of captivity from Egypt. That, that's a stunning thought. This tree was a millennium and a half old when Jesus was born. Tragically, it burned down in 2012. Someone had started a trash fire, and it ended up consuming the tree. What's interesting is that a couple of the limbs of the tree, though, they fell down, and somebody took them, and they cloned it, and they actually recreated the senator. They planted that tree, and it's now growing, and I love the name of that tree. It's called the Phoenix. I thought that was fantastic. There's also the tree Prometheus. 
It's a great basin, bristlecone pines. That's why you came to church, right, to talk about bristlecone pines in the Sierra Nevada mountains of California. Scientist Donald Curry was trying to use a technique where you can try to age a tree without actually cutting the tree down. Usually you have to cut the tree down, you count the, the rings. Well, they developed a way of aging trees where you would basically take like a, a core sample out of the tree and then you could count those rings. But when he was trying to, to, to date this one tree, something went wrong, either a couple of his instruments broke or, or, or he just got frustrated and gave up. Anyway, he ended up cutting the tree down. Here's what he found out. Prometheus was 4,862 years old. Now, when Curry, when he, when he found out what he'd done, the way Peterson tells it is he had a lot of regret and actually took a lot of flack from the scientific community, from a lot of the community. And he had a lot of regret because he realized what he had just done. He has chopped down the oldest known living thing in not just the world, but the entire universe. As I read this book, um, it reawakened me to trees. And I started thinking about the tree that was outside my bedroom window as a child. I think it was a rowan tree. It was 40 to 50 feet tall, massive canopy, these little clusters of orange berries that tasted terrible because I think they were poisonous. Um, and I would climb up that tree regularly. I'd climb up and there's this spot where from this massive trunk and the, the limbs would go out, it's just this perfect little recliner for a seven-year-old boy. I'd watch the leaves rustle. Spend afternoons daydreaming as squirrels would climb up and climb down and birds would fly in and out. So I read through this book, started making me think about my favorite tree at different trails and parks around town at Stimson Family Preserve, just kind of up the lake, this really beautiful 3.2-mile loop. It, 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 just, it is gorgeous through Douglas fir trees, and there's this tree about uh, halfway through the, the main loop. It's the second last kind of major climb or moderate climb, and it's over on the left-hand side, this little tiny rest on this climb, and it's, it's just perfectly vertical and stunningly massive. Started thinking about the apple orchards throughout our county, and all the times we've visited different places, especially when our kids were younger and we'd go to, to these apple orchards so that we could buy the seconds, you know, the boxes of stuff they can't sell in the store, so they sell them there and, and all the applesauce and pies. Thought about the Taylor guitar that my wife bought me last Christmas, made from a spruce tree. It's been refashioned and remade into something beautiful that brings music into our home. Thought about the pink dogwood that my, my dad planted on the side of his yard in tribute to my grandma Betty. And how every spring when it would bloom, this, this deep pink hue is a way of declaring to death that resurrection is real and out of barrenness comes life. This book made me think a lot about trees. It made me think about how the Bible, it starts with the tree and it ends with the tree. So it's the tree of life, this, this tree in, at the end of the book of Revelation, the very end of the Bible, it says it has 12 different types of fruit that's, that's always in harvest. And its leaves are for the healing of the nations, that God is bringing a new creation and mending it through a tree. And I thought about you. I thought about me, and I thought about Christ's followers and how God actually speaks of his people as trees. One of my favorite texts, Isaiah 61.3, says this. Oh, that we would be called 
oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. I love that description of people. They might be oaks of righteousness, solid and stable, with bearing, bringing refuge and comfort and rest and shade. Trees give so many incredible gifts, strong and impressive and beautiful and feed people. And, and even when they're chopped down, they're, they're refashioned into things like the pews you're sitting on, the timbers that, that, that support the roof and provide a shelter here. And they're alive. How do you become like this? How do you become like a tree like this? And that's why we're going to look at Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is going to give you the answer to how do we actually become like this. If you're, if you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Psalm chapter 1. This is God's holy, helpful, life-shaping word. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Feel free to grab the seed. The first word of the first verse, it's an invitation to a way of life that's really good. This word blessed can mean to be happy. Um, I think Jonathan Pennington, a New Testament scholar, makes a very convincing case that a, that a really good translation of that word would be this, flourishing. Flourishing is the person who, who delights in God's word and meditates, ponders on it regularly, day and night. It's word flourishing. I think the context of Psalm 1, I think if you look at all the verses, really supports that translation of flourishing. We see it, you're like a tree planted by streams of water. It yields its fruit and its leaves don't wither. It's always thriving. In all things, it prospers. You know, when I, when I, when I think about this passage of a tree planted and it's always green, and I think about the nickname of Washington State, I always wonder what people east of the mountains think. You know, I've driven east of the mountains so many times over the last year, and it's beautiful, but it's not often green. It's often kind of brown with rocks and tumbleweeds coming across, except in the spots where there's a river or a stream, and then it's green. Or in a place that's being farmed, then it's emerald, dazzling green. So I just wonder, evergreen state, it's kind of like Seattle got together and voted, and Spokane got left out. But that's a picture of this text. It's a picture of this text that, that we might be able to be evergreen, even in dry places. And the way we do that is we delight in God's law and we meditate day and night. Now, it's an incredible invitation, but before we go any further in the sermon where we're going to talk about digging our lives deep into God's word and what is often 
named or, or phrased as something called a spiritual discipline. And that can come with all sorts of weight and pressure and burden, like, okay, I got to read my Bible more. I need to pray more. And there's probably like even, you know, what are we, nine days in to the new year? And most of us are probably eight days behind on our annual Bible plan. And so what I want to do is remove a little bit of the pressure as we get into a text that talks about getting into the Bible night and day. We'll do this by looking at verses 1 and 2. Let me read them to you again. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. All right, Sunday school class. Let's do a little, let's do it. Let's pretend like we're in Sunday school class, seven years old. Who is the man who meditates upon the law of God day and night? Who is the man who meditates? It's Sunday school. All of your five-year-olds will get this right, I promise you. Who is the man who meditates upon the law of God day and night? Jesus. It's Jesus. This text, first and foremost, was lived by your Savior if you're a follower of Christ. This text, first and foremost, doesn't point to what you must do, but it points to what Christ has done. And why this is so helpful for us is before we get into how it applies to us, it's a biblical principle around this beautiful word called grace, that before Jesus is your example, he's your substitute, that he lived the way you were supposed to live and the way I was supposed to live and yet failed to, and that he took the punishment that we deserved on a cross and that he rose from the dead triumphantly. It's all good news. This, this text is, I would suggest to you, Psalm 1 is what's called an abundant life text, not an eternal life text. It's not telling us what we must do to be saved. It's, it's inviting us to a way of living that makes that salvation realized in our lives into the nooks and crannies that we might flourish. Everything we're about to talk, everything that's being told to, if you are here and you're a follower of Christ, I recognize that in this room there's people from different backgrounds and faith traditions, and if you are not a professing Christian, we're so glad you're here, and, and I hope you hear of the grace of God through Christ, but if you're a follower of Christ, everything you're about to hear as we talk about getting our lives deeply into the Bible, we're doing it as already saved, is already pursued, is already forgiven, is already justified is already reconciled back to God, is already adopted, is already called, and one day glorified people. I think sometimes we have a tendency, while, while we get kind of wigged out in, in the church, sometimes about talking about things like Bible plans and, and prayer and scheduled times and making plans and, and being disciplined in our walk, is that we forget to do them in light of the grace of God who's done all of it already for us. None of the things we're talking about today are about earning before God. They're about getting to know the God who did everything for us in Christ more deeply into our lives. Maybe more simply, I could just say that your degree of obedience to this passage does not ensure or trash your salvation in Jesus. Amen? Amen. All right. So let's look at... Um, Two ways to live with really two outcomes. This text gives us this kind of binary approach. There's this way and this way, and it uses the, the words cursed or blessed. So we have this, this way, like a cursed way to live. You walk with the wicked. You stand like sinners. You sit with scoffers. Say the curse could be like the unhappy, the fading, the floundering, the frustrated person. It's the person who traffics in this world but not in God's word. And in this text, there's this sense of progression, this sense of like deepening commitment to a, a merely secular way of understanding life. There's this walking, and then there's a standing, 
And then there's a, a sitting. There's like a resolved commitment to a, 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 a biblical. The Bible has no bearing in your life, and the things of God have no bearing in your life. And we could even maybe see a progression with the, the words of wicked to sinner to scoffer. Scoffer was someone that was robustly committed to a godless way of existing. What this text says is that's never going to result in flourishing. I read this article this past week about a politician from, from California, I think from Orange County, who recently uh, passed away from COVID. And she was very vocal um, against uh, government mandates and vaccinations. And, and whatever you feel about that, I'm not bringing it up for that reason. Here's why I'm bringing it up. There was, a, there was an article that came up, and it was to confront us as a culture with this question. When an anti-vaxxer dies of COVID, is that cause for glib, ironic satisfaction? And I just grieved. Why does that question even need to be asked? How have we become a culture where we would even add that? That's barbaric. It's tragic. And what this text is saying is that sort of foolishness isn't just foolish, it actually can be caught. It's contagious. And there's an antidote to it, and it's here. It's the Word of God. It says, get the Word of God in you so, so, that, so that you don't go down, so you're not walking and then sitting or standing and then sitting in the way of scoffers who, who, who might say yes to that question. And the contrast, this is a very cursed way of living. There's a very blessed, a very flourishing way. It's delight in the Bible, meditate upon it day and night. And, and if we reverse this from being cursed, it's just someone who is increasingly becoming entrenched in a biblical way of seeing the world, seeing it through the lens of the one who designed us and fashioned us and has spoken to us and said, I know the manual, and I, I know the blueprint of your lives, so I know how your societies are going to work well, I know how your relationships work well, I know how you have personal integrity, I know how you can carry yourself out, and I've told you. Root yourself down into it. The psalm gives two ways to live with two very different results. We see kind of a short-term result in one through four, kind of the way we live now, and then we see a longer term in verses five and six, but really both of this, it's life or death. It's flourishing or floundering. Floundering, And what it's doing is giving us the why behind why we read the Bible. God didn't have to, but he does. And I love that about this. He doesn't just say, read it because I told you to. He says, let me tell you why. It'll make all the difference in your life. It'll make all the difference in your life as you. It's the why behind having a Bible plan. It's the why of setting your alarm clock and waking up in the morning. It's the why of sitting through a sermon and saying that it's the why of memorization. He's, he's giving you this why that you might flourish. So there's a couple words that we need to unpack as we, we, we lean into this text because it's not just talking about reading the Bible. It actually uses this word to, to meditate. And so I want to unpack two words quickly as we get into it. The words are, are law and meditate. So we see it in verse 2. But his delight, this, this path of flourishing, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So the word law might be confusing. It's talking about like we're just supposed to study maybe like the Ten Commandments, this, this summary statement of, of God's law. Well, the law can be used for that. But in other places of the Bible, the law is used for, for God's larger law. He's got lo there's lots of different commands in the Bible that can be used for that, the civil and religious laws, the moral laws. 
The law was also used, though, in the Bible for the first five books of the Bible, which are also known as the Torah or the, the law. What gets a little more confusing or maybe more helpful is law was also used for the, all of the Old Testament, so the first 39 books of your Bible. And the law is also used for the entire Bible. So when Psalm 1 says to meditate upon the law, here's what it's saying. Know this book. Know this book. And when it uses the word meditate, oh, this is a good word. You're going to like click meditate and, and get some, some synonyms for it, some ways of unpacking it, some other ways that you could translate it. It's words like this, to muse. I love that word. To coo to ponder, to speak it to oneself. Probably my favorite word to define meditate, if you looked at the, the, the Hebrew dictionary, it would be this word, to growl. Eugene Peterson, in his um, book, Eat, Eat This Book, um, uses this illustration, talks about his, his dog outside of a cabin at Flathead Lake in Montana, and it always reminds me of with my dogs and what they would do over a bone. I had a Rottweiler in, in high school, Brandy, 130 pounds, just beautiful, well-trained because it was so massive, you know, you want to scare everyone, and, uh, but just incredible. And we would go get Brandy, we would go get her these cow femurs that had been smoked and seasoned. And you would bring these, I'd, you know, carrying this like a brontosaurus, you know, it's like, felt like Fred Flintstone. You bring this cow femur to my dog and, and she, would, she would just sit there. And dogs can smile. It's just smiling, ear to ear, smiling. And there's, it's already starting to salivate. And you, can, you, just, you, you bring it over. And, and I would lay it down. And Brandy, she would, she would just look at you and say, thanks, buddy. And she'd take one paw, and she would take it, and she'd bring that bone in and take the other paw and put it underneath. And it, would, it was like it would snuggle with the cow finger. And it would just kind of sit there and ruminate over it, just ponder, musing over it, and then it would start to smell it. And it's probably getting disgusting. Some of you are like, we are not dog people. <laughs> it just start to, to chew on it, soften it, and it would growl. It wasn't like a fearful growl. It wasn't fearsome. It was, like, it was almost like a, like a tiger purring. <laughs> Somehow that applies to this text. That's what we're doing with the Word of God, is you take it and you draw it near. You say, oh, there's so much goodness in this. Just like that bone down to the marrow. And this invitation to be people that flourishes, to, to take the living and active word of God and to pull it close. Not just to get into the word, but meditation, pondering, cooing, musing over. It gets the word of God deep into our hearts. I love the way David Mathis says it in his book, Habits of Grace. He says, we were made to meditate. And this is different than some kinds of meditation. This isn't about emptying your mind. This is about filling your mind and your heart with the Word of God. It says, we were made to meditate. God designed us with the capacity to pause and ponder. He means for us to not just hear Him, not only to read quickly over what He says, but to reflect on what He says and knead it into our hearts. It is a distinctively human trait to spot and consider, to chew on something with the teeth of our minds and hearts, to roll some reality around in our thoughts and press it deeply into our feelings, to look from different angles and to seek to get a better sense of its significance. The biblical name for this art is meditation. 
Donald Whitney, in his book, Spiritual Disciplines of the Christian Life, which is a really, really good book, and I love that the, the title of the book kind of gives the punchline. Every, everything we do is a quote-unquote spiritual discipline, whether it's giving or serving or prayer or solitude or science or, or Bible reading or meditation or study. He says it's all for the Christian life. It's all to do what this text says, that you might be like trees planted in streams, that you might bear fruit in your lives. He defines it like this. He says, let's define meditation as deep thinking on the truths and spiritual realities revealed in Scripture or upon life from a scriptural perspective for the purpose of understanding, application, and prayer. And then he goes on and he gives this illustration. He says, you know, he uses this like analogy of think of, think of yourself like a teacup with hot water in it. And then think of the word of God like a, like a tea bag. And if, if you read the word of God, it's like dipping the bag in one time. And then maybe you read it again and you dip it in again. And then maybe, maybe you study it a little bit. It's like you dip it in two times or three times. But he says what memorization does is it's like taking the tea bag and, and putting it into the water so that all of its, of its color, all of its flavor, all of its aroma permeates that, that, that hot water, that teacup. And results are incredible. I'll quote him here. He says this. He says, meditation on scripture is letting the Bible brew the brain. You know, and I will say, I'll just pause. I think some of the reasons that we struggle sometimes, if you're someone who struggles with the Bible, there can be lots of reasons for it, and every single person here at points has struggled, and oftentimes at many points will struggle. So let's, right? But I think some of it is that sometimes we're just, we just read through it, but we don't ponder it. We just kind of one dip, and then we wonder why the water's so weak. All right, thus we might say that as the tea colors the water, meditation likewise colors our thinking. When we meditate on scripture, it colors our thinking about God, about God's ways in his world, and about ourselves. Similarly, as the tea bag flavors the water, so through meditation, we, constant, we consistently taste or experience the reality taught in the text. The information on the page becomes experience in our hearts and minds and lives. Reading the Bible tells the believer, for example, of God's love, which is good, good, right? Meditation more like, is more likely to convince him or her of it personally and to cause a person to feel loved by God. You know, I hope that that alone does enough to, to motivate us to, to try to develop if you haven't or if maybe you've done it before and you've fallen back or maybe this is something you do regularly to just encourage the work that you're doing. But this idea of making the, the truths of God more real, personally real to us, I hope that motivates us enough. But I'm gonna look at, we're going to look at three different motivations from this passage to hopefully encourage us to, to commit ourselves in this year towards meditation on Scripture. Um, it'll make you solid. It'll make you stable, and it will make you fruitful. Solid, stable, and fruitful. Or like Psalm 1 says, that you would be like trees that are planted, yielding its fruit without withering. First point, solid. You'll be solid, not shallow. So you'll be solid, you won't be chaff, as this text talks about. Tim Keller says, like, there's a hollowness to all of us. Thank you, Tim. Um, we strike poses. We have facades. We want others to think of us in certain ways. We want to think of ourselves in a certain way. Inside, there's not a correspondence with the outside. The, the secret to making sure that doesn't continue to happen, the secret to making sure you become a person of substance, a person of solidity rather than hollowness, is meditation. It's like a tree, not like the chaff. Delight meditation on the law of God. Andrew Peterson in his book, um, God of the Garden, he wrote about when the Europeans 
um, came over to, you know, in quotes, the New Orleans, they came over to, to North America and they found live oaks. And they began to then build their ships out of live oaks because the, the wood was so incredibly durable. It was so dense. It was so solid um, my wife, that they began to build these ships out. And actually, the, the, the Navy became so fascinated with live oaks, they actually invested and they built like whole, whole farms of planting and cultivating these live oaks. I think there's still one right now that has a, a live oak tree. I think it's called the Angel Oak that's in South Carolina. It's like four or 500 years old. It's just a stunning, stunning tree. Uh, my wife and I, we experienced this firsthand, the strength of, of these oaks in shipbuilding when we lived in Boston. At the end of the, what's known as the Freedom Trail, this kind of like red stripe that goes through the city of Boston, it leads you by lots of important buildings and sites and churches and, 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 and graveyards, like you can go see where Mother Goose is buried, and then you end up in the north part of Boston, you're by this harbor, and there is, um, at the end of this trail, there's this wooden hold, three-masted heavy frigate called the USS Constitution, just sitting there in the water. Does, for, for three extra cookies after the service, does anyone know the nickname of the USS Constitution? Old Ironsides. Five cookies. All right. And good for the person next to you not taking credit for you whispering it in their ear. Excellent job. It's called Old Ironsides because what would happen is the, the, the British Navy would shoot cannonballs at the sides of this, this ship. They just bounced off. Couldn't break it. It couldn't sink it. God's word makes us solid. It brings a depth to who we are. It brings a, a resilience. Also makes us stable, not scattered. We're planted. I love this picture in this text. You're not just a tree, but you're, you're planted. You're planted by streams of water. You're, you're planted. You're not like chaff. Chaff was the, it's like the husk of a corn or the, the outside skin of a seed. It doesn't have any nutritional value. It's, it's not what we keep. It's what we, 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 we get rid of. It's, it's, it's weightless, and it, the, the wind will just carry it wherever, wherever it wants. But this text says someone who delights, ponders, muses, growls over the word of God because someone who's stable, not scattered. I'll give you a little bit longer quote from, from Tim Keller because I just think it's stunning. We become persons of stability rather than being controlled and blown about by circumstances. The chaff is blown away. The tree is rooted. A person who has learned the discipline of meditation is not just like a normal tree. This is like a tree that's rooted near a stream. Trees that are just rooted have to have rain. They can't handle dry seasons. The weather had better be okay or the tree is going to die. But a tree next to a stream, it doesn't matter about the heat. It doesn't matter about the weather. It'd be great to have rain, but it doesn't need it. Circumstances don't matter because the tree has direct access. Meditation gives you direct access to something that makes you absolutely stable. I think it was Elizabeth Elliot who said, joy is not the absence of trouble, it's the presence of God. It goes along with what this verse is saying. It doesn't matter what is or is not in the air, in the weather. Circumstances don't matter. Meditation gets you in contact with, as it were, and I, I, love this, I love this line, meditation gets you in contact with the water that is there when all the other waters dry up. It gets you into contact with the light that is there when all the other lights go out. I've shared this story many, many times. Um, 
my best friend growing up was, uh, name, his name was Pete, um, Pete Coppice, and uh, his family is a great family. Uh, John and Joanne, his, his, um, his parents bought me my first Bible. They got me a, a NIV student Bible with my name on the cover and, and gold down at the bottom, which I thought was so cool. I mean, I never read it when, back then, but, but later on, I thought it was really cool. And um, I just loved growing up with, with Pete as a dear friend. And he died when he was 26. He was working on his car, and he, um, he had a brain aneurysm. Healthy, and then he's gone. I remember going to the memorial service, and it was at a church kind of in Northgate, right off the freeway. And being 26, being so young, growing up in the Seattle area, the place was just packed out with all of my high school friends sitting there in a room of hundreds and hundreds of other 26-year-olds just, just, just weeping and sitting awkwardly, try, trying to figure out how to make sense of, of any of the stuff that we were all experiencing. So I'm sitting in the back of the sanctuary in a room of hundreds of people, and I'm in the, the back left side, and then his parents walk in. And here's how we started the service. We stood, and someone began to sing, and I watched his mom raise her hands and just sing these words, great is thy faithfulness. And the reason I've shared it so many times, it was, it's got to be one of the most vivid moments of my life of saying something had to become so real to her to let her do that in that situation. She's saying these words, great is thy faithfulness, and, and, and where it comes from, some of you might know this, it comes from another part of the Bible, this, this, this small book called Lamentations in chapter 3. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope, the steadfast love of the Lord, it never ceases, his mercies never come to an end, they are new every morning, great is your faithfulness, the Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him, and through the process in a life, she, was a, she loved the Bible, she loved the word of God. And she rooted her life deeply into it. In that moment of, of, of drought and famine and scorching heat and the loss of her son, she was able to say, great is thy faithfulness. The only way you stand there singing is that the truth of that text has become real to you. And I don't hold that up and, oh, goodness, we all have gone through circumstances and struggles in so many different ways. Don't hear this as, as something to oppress you if you didn't stand, if you couldn't bring yourself to lift your eyes to the Lord. But here it is an invitation of what God wants to do for you in his words. To say, plant your life here and you'll be stable like a tree, not blown around like chaff. I'll give you the last one, fruitful, not fading. Be fruitful. You'll do something with your life that, 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 that you'll be like a tree that yields its fruit in season and its leaves don't wither. There are so many ways the Word of God produces right now fruit for us and help for us in our relationships in so many ways. Comforts us, provides incredible counsel, can make us wise. Um, let, me, let me motivate a little bit by, by helping you think generationally. That the planting of trees oftentimes has its greatest impact, not for you, but the generations to follow. It's often when the trees that you plant now will be their grandest and greatest and produce the, the, the most 
harvest. I think it can often be very similar to the Word of God, that when we get our lives deep into the Word of God, we can see things now, but some of the stuff that God will do with it will be in two and three and four and 12 generations down the road. Um, American educator A.E. Uh, Winship, he, uh, he did this study of, what, of, of a couple uh, Jonathan and Sarah Edwards, who were both um, great theologians, um, really impactful. And some would say that Jonathan was the greatest theologian that America has ever produced. Um, they had 11 kids, and they were Bible people. They loved the Word of God, and they, built, they wanted to build that into their kids. And so this person came along, and 150 years after the Edwards passed away, I want to say, like, what's become of their family tree? And so it's this really interesting write-up. Let me give you some of the fruit that came out of the Edwards family that loved Jesus and loved the Bible. Here's some of the fruit. One U.S. vice president, one dean of a law school, one dean of a medical school, three U.S. senators, three governors, three mayors, 13 college presidents, 30 judges, 60 doctors, 65 professors, 75 military officers, 80 public office holders, 100 lawyers, 100 clergymen, and 285 college graduates. It's incredible. And what makes this even more interesting is that it's often held up against the legacy of another individual that lived at the same, same time and 150 years later, a guy named Max Duke. Richard Dudgade was the original sociologist who studied this in 1877, but the, the, this, this individual's legacy became known when someone traced back, I want to get the number right, traced back 42 different men from the New York uh, penal system back to that one individual. And when you think about the outcome, and it, it makes sense, there's some, a degree to which it makes sense, but I think it's helpful to have it held up to us that, the, that you rooting your life deeply in the Word of God isn't just about you, and it's not just about the people around you. It's about the generations that will follow you. Now, a word of caution. I got, like, in, in my notes, bolded, caution. Um, boy, you can mess up royal and your kids can st still turn out really great. Amen? That's like every parent's saving grace. And you can do it all right. You won't, but you can do it mostly right, and they don't turn out great. God can do incredible things through us and in spite of us. Okay, so I want to say that as a caution. I want you to take this as a text, like, oh, if I do this and everything will go perfect. But I do want you to hear the principle behind it, that sowing your life in the Word of God will reap benefit in your life, but also those that come after you. All right, so How? How? I hope the motivation is there. I hope you got a loud why for yourself. How? I'll just do this quickly. Let me give you two handles for this. I'll give you one practical and one that I hope is encouraging. Here's the first one. Make a plan. Make a plan. Almost every single person needs a plan. We plan, we plan so much for so many things in our life. Plan for your spiritual growth this year. We, in, in our church, we recommend a tool called a PDP or a personal discipleship plan. Some of you are tired of hearing about PDPs, but then it means you're just starting to hear about them. So PDP, make a plan. Tomorrow night, we're going to do a workshop. You can jump on that. You can, if you don't know how to do one, it'll be a way of kind of interactively helping you develop one. If you're in a gospel community, your gospel community can help you make a plan. If you're a part of a discipleship group, your DG can help you make a plan for this next year. If you're not in any of those things and you don't know what any of this is, take the connect card and just put your name on it and say, I want help writing a PDP or I want to hear more about this. But all you're doing is you're saying, over the next year, here's what I'm committing to to try to get my life into the Word of God. It's one aspect of it. So on, uh, tomorrow when the loop comes out, we're going to have, here's Bible plans to choose from. Here's 
apps to download so you can listen to the Bible. We're trying to resource you so that you can make a plan. Okay, so the big takeaway for this point is to make a... I thought you were with me. All right. Make a... Yes, make a plan. And then you'll be like most people in America. We make a plan, but then we don't use the plan. But at least you made it. No, make a plan, then use your plan. That's one of the biggest encouragements I can give to you is to make a plan. And here's the great news. So often we don't want to make a plan. You know why? Because we forget that Jesus Christ is our righteousness. And Jesus Christ is the only one that perfectly obeyed this. The pressure's off. This isn't like you should do this. This is you could. This is an invitation towards, in, towards practically applying this. All right, give you the second one as an encouragement. Trust the God of this text. So often, if you're, if, if you're like many people in the church, you've tried. You started reading the Bible. You got to the middle part of Exodus and you said, I don't know. You got to Leviticus and said, I'm stopping. You picked it up again. You struggled with it. There's months where it sang to you and months where it was quiet. Times where you're just sleepy. And it didn't seem to pay off. And then other times, that it, that's just... Just reality. Trust the God of this text who makes this promise. You'll be like trees planted by streams of water that will yield fruit in its season and its leaves won't fail. Um, I was talking to one of my kids. They'd read through their Bible a few, few times and I was talking to them, you know, hey, how's it going? How's, how's the Bible plan going? And they're like, oh, I'm doing it but I don't know if I'm really getting a whole lot out of it. And I love the honesty of it. And I just looked at him and I said, but you will. Trust the God of this text. God promises that his word will never return void, but will always accomplish the purposes for which he sends it. I've loved trees um, for a long time, but after reading God of the Garden, I will never think of them the same way. They offer so much memory, refuge, shade, beauty, strength, comfort, warmth, and they give us living examples and inspiration of what, by God's grace, we can become, rooted in his words, growing up as oaks of righteousness. Let's pray. Oh, Father, would you show us really, truly how wonderful your word is, and when you invite us to be men and women and youth and children who let our lives go deep into your word, knowing that it can refresh us, that it can revive us, that it for sure can correct us, but it can restore us, that it can comfort us, that it can calm us, that it can inspire us, and ultimately that it points to you, the one who authored it and authored us. Let us give ourselves towards getting our lives down into your word that we might be men and women and youth and children of the book. That when this world cuts us, we bleed Bible. When this world directs us in paths that are foolish, that we would have minds of understanding. That your word would come above all things and sing of your grace and your love to us in Jesus, that it wouldn't just be statements, but it would become real to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.